Father in heaven, uh, we've already had some distractions this morning. I think I know where those come from. So I'm praying that you limit them for the next 30 minutes or so. And I'm praying that you give us great insight as we go into this. But with that insight, would you also give us great peace, allowing us to know that we are your children, allowing us to know that we have been covered by your blood, allowing us to experience yet again your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, the the verses that we're about to look at can be terrifying. Would you keep that emotion away and replace it with peace? In Jesus' name, amen. When Jimmy was born, his parents brought him home to an old farmhouse. It's what every little boy dreams of, being born into a family that has an old farmhouse sitting in the middle of an old farm. As he grew up, Jimmy learned all of the great joys of living in an old farmhouse. He learned that when he went outside, he would find rocks and sticks to play with. He learned that he had all the dirt he could possibly want. Man, that's living the dream to a little boy. Inside the house, when he wanted to play in there, this one happened to be like so many other old farmhouses. It had been remodeled time and time again throughout the course of the years. Hallways had been turned into storage rooms. There were rooms that had been turned into hallways. There were places that went absolutely nowhere. It was just fun. Great place to play hide and seek. Great place to invite others over to so that you could show them around. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. Jimmy loved growing up there. There's no question about it. When he was two years old, he started to do what other two-year-old little boys did. He was exploring everything he could possibly explore. His parents would tell you that sometimes he got going so fast and so hard that they would lose track of him. He would get to doing things that he shouldn't do, and usually all they had to do was correct him, just say no and put him on a different path, and Jimmy would then start doing the things that he was supposed to. But if they turned their backs... He was gone. You ever known old two-year-old boys like that? Turn your back and they are gone. That's exactly what it was like for Jimmy. One particular day, they had been watching him and correcting him and doing all the things that parents do, and then they turned their backs and he disappeared, and they had no idea where he went for the longest of times. He found a closet in this old farmhouse he was growing up in, went into it, and his parents didn't know what was in there, and they didn't know he was in there. What Jimmy discovered was that there had been a mouse problem in that closet and in the room surrounding it. And quite some time before this, his parents had put some rat poison in the closet and they had closed the door and forgotten about it. And Jimmy did what most two-year-old boys would if they were exploring and discovered rat poison. He ate it. His parents had no idea that he had done that for two days. Two days, though, after it happened, they got their world turned upside down. You see, his breathing began to be labored. They continued to watch him real closely, and they saw that blood was dripping out of the corner of his mouth. They opened up his mouth, and they saw that there was blood all over the inside of it. So they rushed him to the doctor. The doctor ran a few tests and very quickly diagnosed the problem. They said it is rat poison ingestion. And he started then on a three-part cure for what Jimmy was dealing with. The first part was a K1, vitamin K1 injection. The second part was a blood transfusion. And the third part was a plasma transfusion. Jimmy's life was saved. Everything was okay after he went through this series of procedures. The doctor would later say that the the procedure that saved his life 
was the blood transfusion. Without it, Jimmy would not have survived. But with it, everything was okay. Now, as you hold on to the details of that story, let me add this to you. Jimmy is actually a two-year-old beagle puppy. So it wasn't just a little two-year-old baby. Some of you are looking at me right now like, how dare you do that? And then some of you are also thinking, Whew, the beagle puppy is okay. So I'm in your camp. I was worried about the dog. I actually read this story on the internet last week and, and had just been checking out things about blood transfusions and that came up and that's a new practice within veterinary medicine, which I thought was kind of interesting myself. So Jimmy, two-year-old beagle, rat poison ingestion was a diagnosis and a blood transfusion was the answer. There's a reason I tell you that story. Actually, two reasons. One is rat poison, and two has to do with blood transfusions. We're going to look at both. The verses that Sam read for us just a few minutes ago are full of rat poison. But if you read closely, you can actually see a blood transfusion. And I'll show you what I mean as we go through this. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Now, we started that chapter last week. If you were following along with us, you noticed that we kind of came to an abrupt stop. Most of that was because of time, but there is another reason. The natural chapter break comes between verses 12 and verses 13 in chapter 12. And the passage that Sam read for you out of chapter 12 really flows beautifully into chapter 13. And that's why I wanted to stop there and pick back up this week. All we have to do is read the first line that Sam read for us, and we begin to understand something. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, this is verse 13, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. What we are going to deal with today is a very, very angry dragon. Now, last Sunday, pointed out to you that the dragon is actually Satan, and you do not have to be a biblical scholar to understand that. Satan was hurled to the earth. He was cast out of heaven. We looked at it from the, the lens of the Christmas story, but then we began to understand that since he has been hurled to heaven, he has had his sights set on the people of God and has relentlessly attacked them. In this particular situation, John sees the dragon, or Satan, this angry dragon, attacking the woman. The woman is the nation of Israel and her offspring. He is attacking the Jewish people. Now, if you put all of this in the time frame of Jesus' birth up to today, what we're looking at is the last 2,000 years of anger coming out of the devil and all of it being leveled against the Jewish people, against the nation of Israel. Chapter 12 tells us that the earth actually opened up and swallowed the children of Israel. Now, let me give you some perspective on that. In the year 70 AD, the Romans marched across the nation of Israel. They took that land. In 70 AD, they took the, the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, effectively dispersing the Jews across all of the known lands. They went everywhere. The earth opened up and swallowed the Jewish people. When they spread out, they spread out in such a way that Satan no longer had them in a concentrated place where he could attack them. He was going to have to hunt them down one by one or group by group. It took him 1,000 years to really accomplish that. In the year 1095, during a period that we would refer to as the Crusades, Satan's attack on the Jews intensified. In essence, what happened was the prophecy of Revelation chapter 12 
started to see its fulfillment. During a four-year period of the Crusades, the Crusaders marched across Europe with one goal in mind. That was to murder, to execute all of the Jews that they could find. Those that they did not execute, they sold into slavery. In the year 1099, four years after the Crusades began, they actually marched into the city of Jerusalem where Jews had started to congregate again, and the Crusaders rounded up every Jew they could find, put them inside their synagogues, closed the doors, chained the doors closed, and set them on fire. That's how bad it was. 200 years after that, the nation of England would receive the dubious honor of being the first nation to cast the Jews out of their borders. They didn't even want them in their country. They made it illegal for any Jew to live there. Under King Edward's reign, they made it so difficult for the Jews to remain in England that they fled. Every one of them fled. It would take 350 years before they would return. 350 years before they would be welcomed back. Can you see the attacks of Satan? 200 years after Great Britain did that, the French followed suit. They made it illegal for Jews to live inside their borders. They wanted them out of there. Anti-Semitism was running rampant. The Jews were being persecuted, and the French people wanted nothing to do with them. Right on their heels, the Spanish people did exactly the same thing. Interestingly enough, in the year 1492, when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue, looking for a new world, Spain was shutting its borders to the Jewish people, telling them that they could not have a home in their country. They were running them out by leaps and bounds. The angry dragon was hunting the offspring of the woman. The angry dragon was hunting the Jewish people, the children of God. And if they thought it was bad in 1492 when the Spanish did that, they had no idea what would happen in the 19th century under Stalin's reign in Russia. Stalin decided that he wanted to drive the Jews out of his land, but it wasn't enough to make them leave. He didn't want them to go other places. He wanted to kill them. Three million Jews died in Russia under Stalin's reign in the 1900s. If the Jewish people thought it was bad then, and if the dragon was angry then, it would be nothing compared to what happened less than a hundred years ago during World War I and World War II in what we would refer to as the Holocaust. Under the Nazi regime and Hitler's reign, six million Jews were killed, murdered, executed. Hitler's goal was not to drive them out of his land. Hitler's goal was not just to murder Jewish people. Hitler's goal was to do away with the race. Now, who do you think was fueling all of that? Satan, an angry dragon. It was the fulfillment of what we saw in the last half of Revelation chapter 12. He was hunting the children of God. The earth had opened up and swallowed them and they were dispersed everywhere. Satan had to find them and when he found them, he leveled everything that he had against them. Now, you might think to yourself, is all of that really true? We have some history books that are trying to rewrite history. One of the ways that they're really trying to rewrite history deals with the Holocaust. They're trying to erase it from modern history books. Thankfully, Dwight Eisenhower said, we have to take pictures of this because the time will come when people will not believe it. And they did. They took pictures of it. They recorded it. 
Today there are two Holocaust museums around the world, two different places that are set up so that people will never forget what the Jewish people went through. But what they may not realize is they went through it because the dragon was angry and he was hunting the people of God. I am one of those people, and this is nothing but my opinion, and so please accept it only as my opinion. I don't want you to think that this is biblical truth. I want you to understand that it is solely what I think, but there are many other scholars that would actually agree with me. I believe that everything that we just talked about had a divine purpose. Because the Bible says what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. This is a perfect demonstration of it. Even the Holocaust and the death of six million Jews, what Satan intended for evil, God used for good. When the Jews were being hunted at this level and they were being annihilated at this level, God was creating within them a desire to have their own land again. They hadn't had it since the year 70 AD. For 2,000 years, they had been homeless. In 1948, a Jewish nation became a reality again. The Jews had a place to go that they could call home. They may not have wanted to go there had they not suffered this intense persecution. It is my belief that through all of that, God was still accomplishing His purpose. He was getting them ready to go home. And they are still, the Jewish people are still flocking to the nation of Israel by the thousands every year, trying to get back to a land that they could call their own. So we look at all of that and we think, gosh, during that period, a thousand years in recent history, 1,000 years, saw anti-Semitism like nobody could have ever imagined. And we understand that it was fueled by an angry dragon. But what you have to know is that's not the worst. The worst is yet to come. And chapter 13 details it. The worst is yet to come under the reign of a person that we introduced to you a few weeks ago and we have been referring to as the Antichrist. The Bible refers to him as the Antichrist. You've heard his name, you've heard that title, not only here but probably all of your lives. And you may have wondered, who in the world is this person? Who is the Antichrist? Well, let me show you what the Bible says about him. So if you're in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, keep your finger there. But go back with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This is the same John that received the revelation that we have been studying. And now in this letter, he's going to write a broad, sweeping illustration of who the Antichrist is. Chapter 1, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. 
But as his anointing teaches you about all things, just as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. John would say that the Antichrist is any person that denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is a broad understanding of Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, he would give us greater insight. But now he's saying, you be careful. You be careful of anyone who brings you a teaching other than Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They are the Antichrist, and the person of Antichrist will rise up out of that mentality. Paul would make it a little more specific back in the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you want to turn over there with me, we're in chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, remember, keep a finger in Revelation chapter 13. Paul writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. The day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Don't confuse that with the rapture, the catching up of the church. The day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, happens at the end of all of the prophecies that we're studying. Jesus comes back and brings with him his kingdom. Picking up now verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now that's Paul's description of who this Antichrist is, who this person is, but it's still a little bit confusing. So let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. Keep your finger in Revelation chapter 13, and I'll show you the very first introduction that we have to this person. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beast, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now what Daniel is seeing, and you have to put the, the verses in Daniel chapter 7 before this, he's seeing the dynasties. He's seeing the empires that history has acknowledged. And now another one is coming. Daniel says, this one is terrifying. This one is worse than anything the world has ever experienced. This ruler, this leader, is horrendous. Daniel, though, is still somewhat confused about the vision that he has received. And he asked God to give him some understanding. He knows this. What we're dealing with is a political character. A person that will rise up into a position of authority to lead people. We know this through our study of the time of the tribulation. It is one of the worst periods in all of history. The entire world is in disarray. The Antichrist will become a global leader. He will take on not just the, the leadership of one nation or a few nations, but the entire earth. What we also know, and you're about to find out in Daniel's interpretation of this, is he is going to come out of a coalition of countries. The Bible will teach us that there will be a European coalition again of ten countries and the Antichrist will come out of them. Have you seen anything like that on the news in the past few years? There's a coalition of European countries that involves ten different countries. 
There are some scholars today that are telling you, you pay close attention to what's going on with that European coalition because it may very well be the fulfillment of this prophecy. They have also rolled the ball on trying to make a one currency to cover all of those 10 countries. And what's it called? The euro. People are saying, pay attention to that. Teachers of biblical prophecy have had their eyes turned to it now for several years. I think it's kind of intriguing. may not be the answer that that we've been waiting for. It may not be God saying now's the time, but it fits within biblical prophecy. So Daniel asked for an interpretation, and starting in verse 15, this is what he gets. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts and four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. There's the beginning of this teaching of the ten nations, the European coalition. Verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Daniel seeing the exact same thing John was. And what the two of them will agree on is we're talking about a person. Some people have tried to say, based on John's teachings that we read a few minutes ago, that Antichrist is a political system. Some have tried to say that he is an idea. Some have tried to say that he will be, Antichrist will be a computer, but the Bible teaches he is a man. He's a man of of great words. He is a man that will persuade people to do absolutely horrendous things, one of which is to worship him. I want to take you back now to Revelation chapter 13. I know that we're just grabbing a few things out of this. We have to for the sake of time. We can't go through everything point by point. But what I really want you to see is verse 3. One of the heads of the beast, the Antichrist, seemed to have had a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Scholars have debated what that wound is for the longest of times. And most of them have come to the agreement that what we will see is that the Antichrist will be killed and then he will rise from the dead. Why is that significant? Because if people are going to worship him, he has to duplicate Jesus Christ. There are no other gods that can claim resurrection from the dead. And when I say no other gods, I'm talking about gods with a small g. Jesus Christ is the only one If you look at Buddha and you look at Allah and you look at the gods of Islam and you look at the gods of the New Age movement, not one of them can claim resurrection from the dead. That belongs to Jesus Christ and Jesus only. 
And if the Antichrist is going to try to trump our God, then he has to duplicate that miracle. So there are some scholars who believe that he will actually be assassinated. People will see it again because of the internet, because of television. He will be assassinated and then he will rise from the dead. Personally, and again, we're in the realm of opinion now, I believe that it will all be faked because God is the author of life. And God would not grant that. So I believe he will fake it. But he will fake it in such a way that people will believe it. And as a result of that, he will set up his own throne in the temple of our God. And in order to make all that work, he has to introduce another character. That other character is in the last half of chapter 13 that Sam read for us just a few minutes ago. It is another beast. Both of these beasts are coming up out of the earth, but they are fueled by Satan himself. And Satan is rising out of the abyss where the fallen angels are at. So now the Antichrist is going to give authority to another beast. And this one is another man who has the sole purpose of leading the world in a one world religion with the Antichrist as the object of their worship. It's not hard to imagine this. It really isn't. Because in our world today, there's a movement referred to as Zionism. Zionism is the blending of all of the world's religions. Universalism fits in the exact same category. It is a blending of all of the world's religions. But today, they cannot be fully blended because there isn't one object for them to worship. In biblical prophecy, there will be. That will be Antichrist. And the real worship of him cannot begin or cannot especially be completed until such a time that he duplicates what Jesus Christ did. This prophet will be given great power and great authority and he will work miracles and people will be drawn into it and he will present his boss, he will present the Antichrist as the object of worship. I want you to listen to what the Bible says about things like this. Back in the Old Testament, you don't have to turn with me, but Deuteronomy chapter 13. All the way back in the Old Testament, God says, you be careful of this kind of stuff. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. Back in the New Testament, in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul would write to Timothy these words, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, would actually say it this way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So here's what all of them are saying. Moses is saying this back in Deuteronomy. Paul's saying this in 2 Timothy. Jesus is saying this. False prophets are around. And they're going to bring you a message that says someone else besides Jesus Christ 
can become the object of your worship. And you're okay to do that. In Deuteronomy, God would actually say, if you have somebody that's bringing you teachings other than what you know is right, you run from it. You stay as far away as you possibly can because they will lead you to destruction. Today, one of the fastest growing religions is atheism. The second fastest growing religion, and nobody would ever acknowledge it as religion, is narcissism. The worship of self. Whatever makes you happy, you go for it. You don't worry about God. You don't worry about morality. You don't worry about worshiping anybody else. You deserve the worship yourself. And narcissism has taken off. Atheism is right there with it. There is no God. You set yourself up as a God. Everything is set. The plate is set. The table is set for the Antichrist to come and to give power to this false prophet that he might say, you worship the Antichrist because he has the answers you need. Could you imagine a world where people would put all of their hope in government? Can you imagine a world where people would say that a political system will be my salvation? Can you imagine a world where people would say, all I have to do is trust the government, they will take care of me? It is all around us today. It's low-hanging fruit for the Antichrist. It really is. Because people have been conditioned for it. They've been primed for it. So John would say this in 1 John chapter 4. I want to take you there so that you see this passage. It is incredibly significant. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So John says this, No matter who is speaking, you test what they're saying. That is true of me on a Sunday morning. That is true of your Sunday school teachers, your salt group teachers. That is true of anybody that you see on TV. That is true of anybody that puts themselves forward in a position of authority. You test what they say against the Word of God. And if it does not measure up, you run from it. If it does not measure up to the Word of God, you don't pay attention to it. In fact, you deny it. I had a lady come to me this past week that told me she disagreed with something that I had said. She said, I, I didn't like that at all, and so I called my aunt. My aunt said that that's not biblical, and I, I listened to what she had said she was bringing accusation against me with, and I said, well, let me grab my Bible. So I opened my Bible and took her to two different places to show her where it was scriptural. Folks, when you're testing the spirits, you do not test them according to what other people say. You test the spirits against the Word of God. Does that make sense? which means you have to know the Bible. And time is coming when that will be incredibly important. And let me show you why. We're going to go back to Revelation chapter 13. We're getting close to the end. Hang with me. Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 16. The Antichrist is in power. He has faked his own death and his own resurrection. He has given power to the false prophet who has led the entire world into the worship of Antichrist. But still, God's people are around. The Jews are still there. They're becoming Christians. Gentiles are becoming Christians. And the Antichrist is upset about this, so he has to find a way to separate his believers, his followers, from the followers of God. And look how he does it. This is verse 16. 
He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now, I am positive that you have heard that number in a biblical perspective at some point in your life. But you may have never understood what the mark of the beast is. This is it in a nutshell. In order to separate the followers of Antichrist from the followers of God, this false prophet will put into place an economic system to do that. Meaning this. The entire world will come under one monetary system, one currency. Then they will do away with cash, they will do away with credit cards, they will do away with debit cards, and every person that wants to buy or sell anything will be forced to receive a mark on their hand or on their forehead. A hundred years ago, this made no sense to anybody. Today, it makes perfect sense. Computer scanners show how it works. Bank account that you have under this one world currency will control all of the money. If you go to the grocery store, they will scan your hand or your forehead. That's where your money will come from. If you go to, to Walmart and you want to buy something, they will scan your hand. You want to go buy a car, you want to buy a house, whatever it is, everyone will be assigned a number. Could you imagine everybody having a number attached to who they are so that that number becomes a point of identification for them? Not very hard to imagine. Back in the 20s, it was in the 30s when the Social Security Administration came on the scene and gave everybody a Social Security number. It made perfect sense. Continues on today. A number is assigned to you. So computer barcode, if you will, and it may not be a barcode, a chip of some sort, is implanted in your skin or in your forehead. And if you want to buy anything, you have to have it. Without it, you can't survive. Beautiful system. If you were looking to separate out the worshipers of Antichrist from the worshipers of God, what better way to do it than economically? They can buy nothing. You see, to take that mark says that you are a follower of Antichrist. You have placed your hope in him. To take that mark says that you're willing to follow him and even willing to worship him. But here's what you have to know about that. There is no grace. There is no second chance. There is no forgiveness for those that would receive that mark. To choose that mark means that you will choose hell. And that's exactly how people end up in hell. They choose it. People ask all the time, would a loving God really send somebody to hell? My answer is absolutely not. But a loving God would allow people to choose hell. And he will allow us to choose heaven. And he'll make heaven a possibility for us. But for those that receive the mark of the beast, and think about it in these terms, a father has a wife and children that need to eat and he has babies at home that are crying and all he has to do is accept that mark and he can go buy groceries for his family. A lot of dads will do that. A lot of single moms will say, I can't leave my kids at home starving. All I have to do is accept that mark. I will choose hell to feed them. And they will choose that mark. This is why God says in the book of Revelation chapter 13, you pay careful attention to this. You pay close attention to it because those that would receive it will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Skip over just one chapter with me to chapter 14. This is what you would read. Verse 9. Third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. 
He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. If there is any one biblical prophecy that people need to grab hold of, this is it. Now the good news, here it is. I believe that the church doesn't have to worry about this. We're already gone. But the people that are becoming Christians during the tribulation period, this is a reality. If they want to go to heaven and they want to know Jesus Christ, this mark of the beast is the litmus test that they have to deal with. I grew up in the 1970s worried for tribulation saints. Because in the 1970s, when biblical prophecy was presented, it was presented through fear, trying to scare people into the, the kingdom of God. And I hated that. And I grew up thinking, ah, what if I get left? What if I'm still here? Am I going to have the strength to deal with this kind of stuff? And here's what I've come to understand. No, I wouldn't. I would not have the strength to deal with it. You probably wouldn't either. Dwight Moody actually had somebody come to him one day and say, Preacher, do you have dying grace? And Moody said, What in the world are you talking about? They said, Do you have the grace to die for Jesus? And Moody looked back at him and said, Heavens, no. I've never been presented with the opportunity to die for Jesus. But when I do, God will give me what I need to deal with it. And I believe that's true. I really do. In those moments, these tribulation saints will get what they need. And do you know what that is? It's a blood transfusion. It's exactly what it is. Go back to chapter 11, with, or chapter 12 with me. We looked at this last week. I want you to see it again. Verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Talking about the tribulation saints, they received a blood transfusion. It is the exact same transfusion that you and I have received that will allow us to be caught up with the church and taken out of here. It is Jesus' blood that pours into your body. It's a blood transfusion that saves our souls. It's a blood transfusion that had to be poured out on our behalf and it'll be poured out for those tribulation saints as well. And they'll receive what they need from Jesus Christ. In my study of, of blood transfusions this past week, you know why most people receive blood transfusions? Because their body is low on iron. They've become anemic. They need iron. Spiritually, there's a wonderful application of that. When we receive the blood of Jesus and we receive that transfusion, we receive the iron of God. And that is immovable. And that is unshakable. And it only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about that blood, and we're almost done. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the great and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. There's the blood transfusion. Everything else could clean you up on the outside, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleans us up on the inside. And when it cleans us up on the inside, we are infused with the iron of heaven, able to deal with whatever 
the writer of, of Revelation, John, would say this, you wouldn't love life so much as to shrink from death in the name of Jesus Christ if you had the blood of Jesus flowing through your body. There is nothing to worry about. I used to worry about those tribulation saints. There's nothing to worry about. They have the iron-rich blood of Jesus Christ pumping through their veins. And there is no spiritual anemia when that happens. Last night at the Chain of Lakes Church, Ray had a communion meditation that just fit perfectly with what we were talking about. I asked him to offer our invitation with that same meditation. I want you to think right now of color. Basically the color red and the color black. And when you think of the color red, you think of the color of Jesus' blood as he's shedding it on the cross. And you think of black as the blackness of our sin that we have in our life. And as we're standing at the foot of the cross and the blackness of our sin is there and the blood of Jesus is pouring down on us, the whole process starts to change. Because the blood of Jesus takes that black, and if you mix red and black together, what color do you get? You get white. Believe it or not, you get white. The blood of Jesus takes and purifies the black of our sin, and it turns it into white. Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they may be white as snow. Though they be are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This scripture talks about us having sins of scarlet, but actually our sins are black. And God changes our, our sins of black with the transfusion to make us white as snow. And uh, in order for us to be white as snow, we have to allow the blood of Jesus to pour over us, to clean, clean us and cleanse us. And it reminds me of a little chorus that we always sang. It's a song called, Oh, the Blood of Jesus, and I'm going to sing it. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as snow. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's stand and sing that song. If you want to be washed white as snow, let, turn that life over to him today. Have the blood of Jesus pour over you and take the black.